Welcome back to Beyond Well. This is a program for people who want to explore our interior lives and learn more about what it means to be human. First, though, I want to welcome back the whole crew. Jenna Lejeune has returned from Argentina. A few Hola. words about Argentina, Hola. despite the fact that you want to kiss everyone. Oh, I just loved Argentina so much. I It, it really was this place that every single individual I met was so warm and so friendly, and it was, I would go back in a heartbeat. It was amazing. And I'm Italian, so I can say this. I'm sorry, Italians. Best ice cream in the entire world. Ooh. Better really? than Italy. Ooh. Better than Italy. Yep. Mm. Mm. So mm. go to Argentina. It's amazing. Brian Goff, wow. so good to see you again. Thank you very much. Good you to moved see you. this weekend. I started to pack this weekend. Oh, yeah. It's it's. Uh, are you doing the the Maria Quando Ondo? What? Who is the Kondo. organizing Kondo? <laughs> Kondo. Are you, I, you I already did her. It. Yeah, I already yeah. did it. Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Do you feel? clean focused and joyful <laughs> no but there is no it of sounds all, like i need no. to move to portland <laughs> of right? all the emotions you're feeling brian clean and joyful are not two of the most prominent ones not, right well they're in the mix i would say they're in the mix but you know it's like a it's like a it's like an onion when you move right there's a lot of stuff one of my friends said on. you can probably see maria kondo's like recycling pile from space <laughs> I heard that I heard that like the average the average family of something like three that she works with, and I don't think these are hoarders, after she like sorts through their stuff and decides like what brings them joy. Yeah. They end up having like seventy bags, like garbage bags worth of stuff Mm -hmm. to just give away, throw away, whatever. Mm That's crazy. You know, I had that many bags in my divorce, not because oh it brought me joy to get rid of them, but just because, There's you know, a, yeah, you have to and at some point. Right. And I'm going from something bigger to something smaller, so totally. I've got to figure out. Yeah, oh, we, moved to a, we moved to a tiny house in the last year, and so um, in over the course of about a year and a half before moving in, we probably got rid of about 85% of our stuff. And then, we so we move into the tiny house, and I still keep bringing stuff to the Goodwill. It's like I just you can just keep getting. Well, your yeah. tiny house is beautiful, but I have Thank to you. imagine there's like room for a couple pair of socks, scissors. <laughs> you know, I, and be like, I, I, hey, I, we need some tape. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to get a storage unit for that. And I want to welcome. Um, thanks for coming up from Seattle, Sarah Townsend. I've read your memoir over the weekend, and I was gobsmacked by the beauty of. The sentences, what you went through and how you formed it in this framework of poetry and really deep thought and exploration. The topic, of course, is your postpartum psych- psychosis. Mm-hmm. So thank you thank for writing you. it and for joining us. It's very us. moving to me that you liked it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, one of the things I uh, about this show that I really like is that we explore the things that I, I think we explore the things the way they are rather than the way people want them to be. Yes. And I think with um, pregnancy and delivery in particular, there is this way in which women are really brain um, controlled to believe it's going to be so beautiful and you're going to look like Kim Kardashian when your child is born. You'll be You'll just have everything together, and the child will bring you so much comfort and joy. And I don't think that that's the experience for a heck of a lot of women, but we don't talk about it very often. It's true. 
and it's amazing that we've known for quite a while now and and we still don't talk about it very often. Yeah. One thing that was striking to me in writing this is that it's now 20 years in hindsight. Yeah. And I think it's not a coincidence that it dovetails with launching my daughter to college. Mm. And oh, I, how I think in a way that I just I couldn't look away. Uh-huh. Mm. Right. Uh, but mm. this very much feels like our book. Yeah. And mm. that there's beauty in in the birth that we had, mm-hmm. uh, despite there having been complications. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's brilliant how you allow your daughter, it, even in the book, to have these reflections of you, of what you went through as a young woman now, to be looking back on this really profound experience. But it is about postpartum psychosis. And I think if anybody wants to think about a time in your life, you don't want to get psychotic. It's right after you deliver a child. Talk a little bit about the experience of what led up to that time and, and truly kind of the break, if you would. Well, I was already a practicing psychotherapist, and so it very much caught me by surprise. I, I think that's probably true for most women. And I suppose it was a classic presentation in that immediately after... I gave birth, I couldn't sleep. So that that was, in fact, the presentation. And we could explain that in a lot of different ways. A, a psychiatrist told me that my brain had had, had had a seizure with the cutting of the umbilical cord. Mm. And that may be a component. Metaphorically, that's clearly the moment of separation mm. uh, from my infant and one thing that we know now is that uh, postpartum psychosis is most often associated with bipolar disorder mm. and that that link is often missed. And so there was a lot that was not known yeah. uh, in terms of what was happening for me. The best thing I could do was to say that I couldn't sleep. And when I said that, I was told that eating was more important or, or that sleeping was more important than eating. Hmm. And, of course, that raised my anxiety further. <laughs> Around I eating and sleep. sleeping, right? Yeah, yes. yeah, does all of it. Um, you say in one thing that your doula had prepared you for childbirth and had talked about the possibility of postpartum depression and psychosis, but you, like so many other women, just dismiss it as no, because I'll be making my nursery perfect in some way, yes, right? right. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't just any doula. This was the parent educator, Penny Simkin, who is the founder of the doula movement in yeah. the United States and internationally. And what a brave woman to routinely stand up in front of her class of students and say, by the way, this happened to me. And I did dismiss it. But she was also the first one that we called right away to say, we're really unclear what's happening here. Right. Mm. You know, despite living in a, in a pr- pr- very progressive birthing community and having uh, sort of everything going for me in a way. Yeah. You say um, I, I, it may have been that there was some 
some sign previous that you were getting into trouble, disorganization, incessantly talking, the belief that I was having a really good idea. I think that's such a fabulous line. I mean, how many people have I talked to when right before they crash, they're like, you must invest, Sheila, right? Yes, Um, my ideas were brilliant. Right, so that there was some quickening or something like that before the big crash, right? No, I would say that I still followed this period of not being able to sleep. Oh, okay. And that the sleep deprivation really exacerbated all of that. Yeah. If there was a precursor that I could identify now, I would say that during my pregnancy, I had a lot of anxiety, Mm. which is also to be expected. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. yeah. I was warned about a potential cord death, and that was something that I really um, had trouble letting go of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just came to have lots of fears about how my daughter could inadvertently be harmed in some way mm. uh, with, without intent. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, when you recognize how much trouble you were in or you actually didn't recognize it, this is probably looking back on your psychosis, you say, how is it that we hold ourselves together in the face of impossible losses when our skin splits open and bleeds like a child's hands and knees landing on a gravel, gravel driveway? It's tempting to go numb for a time it's inevitable. The hour of lead, Emily Dickinson calls it, the grace period between the injury and the pain. What was the grace period? What was the hour of lead for you? As I hear you read that now, in this moment, I think of it more retrospectively because I think for me that I really had the Mack truck of illnesses. This wasn't a slow, a, a kind of a gradual, low-level depression. It mm. was just um, postpartum psychosis is, is a psychiatric emergency. It's just, uh, you know, no amount of breathing is, is going to take it away. Right, yeah. So I think that the healing for me was not as much about the psychosis, although that was true. I needed to be brought back, but more like post-traumatic stress. Uh-huh. And so I think um, the kind of numb is just not being able to fully take in what it is that's happened and then eventually the tremendous grief about the loss of time. Mm. And I think mm. for me, and if, if, if I were to say that there was a, a political agenda, it's that I'm really interested in, in finding ways for treatment for women that does not separate them uh, from their infants. And that would have a tremendous impact on a whole nother generation of, of babies. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was so struck uh, in your memoir. You had some line, I won't be quoting it as eloquently as it's written, but it, um, it was something about like the the most painful part wasn't the madness, it was the loss that you had. And I was so struck by that about, isn't that true? That, you know, it isn't the the actual kind of, you know, psychosis or the the, the something in your brain that is the most painful. It's all of the things that going through that you lost. You lost this maybe 
time with your infant and maybe lost a dream that you had about like how beautiful and magical that time would be? I mean, I don't know all of the losses. Well, it does go back to Sheila's idea that we ha- that, yes. that we expect that it will all of course. be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. And mm-hmm. I have a certain degree of perfectionism that uh, went well with mm-hmm. that yeah. view. But I'll tell you that it was a wanted pregnancy and it was a beautiful birth mm. despite it having uh, traumatic elements. Mm-hmm. And when Sophie arrived, there was all that initial connection and breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So it looked as if it was going on oh, yeah. a healthy trajectory. Yeah. And one thing that I'm most grateful for is that I didn't personally have the experience of detachment from my baby. Yes. In fact, she was uh, one of the few uh, people who could bring me back into myself. I felt some grief this weekend in having read a recent article about a woman who wanted to be the perfect mother and landed in a psychiatric ward. And there was so much overlap, despite how much I thought about this subject, that it it actually brought me up short. And what I had heard most in that story was the impact of the separation Mm. um, Mm. of the couple and of the mom and the baby and I said to my husband, Roger, that I'm surprised after all these years. It's, it's uh, very activating for me. It's, it's generating a lot of feeling. And then he said, well, actually, that isn't what happened to you. Your, your baby did get to come. Mm. Yeah. And so... I thought that was one of the most wow. beautiful images that I've ever read, really, was... The idea of this cold, sterile psychiatric center and you, your husband and your infant lying on the floor together. And I was just, it shook me because I was just thinking, you know, even in these awful places, healing can occur. And it's not because of the medicine oftentimes. It's because of this, of this, the power of human touch and knowing that there's someone we need to love and that that they're going to love us back. Yes, I think that's entirely, I think that is the most therapeutic element. And it's something that I talk about as containment Mm -hmm. in my book. Yeah. But not only was it a linoleum floor, but it was a linoleum floor in a padded room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to bring the love of a relationship into that space, keeping in mind that he was a first time dad with a Mm -hmm. baby at home and really also not knowing how to cope, right? right. Um, But for all the ways in which my experience did not meet what I would want for an ideal uh, mother-infant hospital, they did bend the rules in whatever Mm -hmm. way was possible to allow my husband to come to me at night so that I could go to Mm -hmm. sleep and to allow him to transport my daughter and... So I'm grateful. Yeah, those that. were those were the themes that pushed mm-hmm. through for me. As unique as your experience was, and as you described it, like a Mack truck with the psychosis, universal themes of attachment and connection mm-hmm. and love, and then loss or fear of loss. Those things feel like they're the kinds of themes that so many of our listeners can relate to even if they can't relate to the particulars of what was threatening those things or what was healed by those things. 
Absolutely. And I, I think it's not an accident that themes of loss just ripple through my book. You know, mm-hmm. it's as if I made a tour of all the losses because, as you know, they're, they're cumulative right. and mm-hmm. interrelated. Uh, and I think it's part in part why it's not in a linear form because <laughs> somehow I was trying to describe how all of these individual moments are mutually in- influential. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, your journey back through the, the memories of your father and the, your family of origin where you have this dad who is leaving again for this music career and another mistress and another, you know, grand adventure. And then obviously he has, he's diagnosed with some sort of bipolar or schizophrenia or something. So then there's this spectrum of, of illness that is generational as well. Yes, it's certainly intergenerational. And in my family, it wasn't spoken about. Mm. So my father, one element of writing this book was how much I adored this man who had mental illness. And unfortunately, it wasn't treated. And not as much was known about it. It was it was really stigmatized and also associated with creativity. So what made him so um, compelling and offbeat uh, sometimes uh, could fold into something that looked more like mania or depression. Mm -hmm. And because I was his only child and ultimately my parents divorced, I spent a lot of time in his company and having to sort out how much on guard I needed to be uh, for your own safety or because you were never clear that he was stable? Both, I would say. I would say that clear that he knew how to parent. Mm. I knew that he loved me, which is different. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> boy, do I understand that one. Um, I want to, Jenna, because you deal uh, with women who come in with a lot of different body issues, does postpartum show up as also a body trauma that somehow women think that the body has has betrayed them in this or do they understand like I'm because I'm always I'm always thinking about when you're preparing for a child if there's this huge likes pressure like are you eating the right thing are you drinking the right thing are are you exercising enough are you sleeping properly you're this container for what is supposed to be perfect right right and when it isn't perfect do they blame their bodies their own sense of self and how they they operated during that period that's an interesting question um i haven't heard at least the people that i serve talk about it in in that way it's not that I'm sure there are people who have that experience, but I think sort of more generally, it there definitely is this blaming aspect. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hear people talk about it quite so much as my body failed me because that requires some sense of ability to separate the self from the body, which yeah. is a very difficult thing for right. most of us to be able to do, but some sense of I didn't do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I was weak in some way, mentally, physically, something like I did something wrong to cause this. Mm. 
And um, so I think that that's a huge part of the struggle. And and then added um, to what you were saying earlier that you are appreciative that you still got to have a sense of attachment with your child. I, I so appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that that is one of the things as a as a therapist that I hear from people who have just recently had children with such tremendous shame that sometimes they don't feel that sense of attachment mm. to their infant and that's never ever talked about wow. um, except in the privacy of my office where I think sure I've heard that you know 10,000 wow. times but there's such shame because the thought is you're always supposed to feel this profound sense of attachment and so when postpartum whatever flavor of, of suffering it is depression or psychosis when that also results in a lack of a feeling of attachment to your infant then there's this like huge huge yeah. shame on top yeah, of that I can mm -hmm. only imagine I love the way that you're describing that it's interesting to me that there are so many expectations of what the pregnancy is supposed to be like and then what the delivery is supposed to be like and then what it's like to be a mom and not only expectations about um, health and taking the right vitamins and having the right nutrition and being at the right weight and how quickly you get back into shape or yeah, whatever that means right. but also all the expectations around as you were saying Jenna how I'm supposed to feel about this mm -hmm. um the bond that I'm supposed to have, mm -hmm. the just the undying, like this is a huge gift straight from heaven and that's all it is kind of message. Right. I mean, you all were asking me what it's like to pack and I realized packing and having a baby are, are I mean, they're, uh, they're right next to each other, of course. <laughs> um, but, you know, the question was ways, like, yeah. is this amazing and or is this great? And it's like, well, you know, I mean, that, some of that stuff's in there, but I just, I feel like, our emotional landscape is so layered and varied that so oftentimes, even if we can't name it and suss it out, it's combinations of emotions that don't seem like they ought to be able to go mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is a huge gift and what the hell has happened to my life yeah. mm -hmm. right next to each other. Well, and I felt particularly alone at night because that's when your support system all needs to restore themselves mm -hmm. and then there you are still uh, needing to respond to your infant's needs of, of course there might be a partner who's trying to share some of those elements but to bring back in the idea of body I mm -hmm. think for me the idea of losing the option for breastfeeding yeah. was particularly mm. was a tremendous loss mm. and did fall into the category of ways in which I evaluated my mothering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I also think on top of that, then we just carry the layers of this experience in our body. So yes. from here on mm -hmm. out, I would say that most of my experience has been coming into contact with all that's living in my body as the memory, the residue mm. of this experience um mm. people don't often actually describe psychosis and i think because you have such a masterful quality with language i'd like you to um just talk a little bit about what it was like to actually break from reality well of course you don't know that it's happening exactly and i don't know that i could point to a particular moment 
But I do know that suddenly the world felt very amplified, which is akin to what happens to a woman normally in a pregnancy where sounds are accentuated, smells. But everything seemed to have a double meaning, uh, lots of serendipity with... I think I felt that the world was speaking to me in ways that others couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And also that it wasn't clear to me where my body began and ended. So it was a very diffuse experience. At the same time, I will say that it's not a constant state, that there is there are moments when you, you sort of dial back into yourself and can have a little bit of perspective, which I think can make your family hopeful. And wow. yet... Is was not uh, a long-term, wasn't something that I could retain in, in for the long-term. And I couldn't stop talking. So the, with, with very, uh, not only incessant speech, but uh, in, very intensified. And pressured. So it's mm-hmm. very difficult to be around. Uh-huh. And in fact, I think that sometimes hospitalization is needed in order to preserve relationships mm. because... Mm. As you say, Brian, it's it's not really workable. It's not really functional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you describe the world, you picking up messages in the world that other people aren't able to pick up, was the experience as if you had this heightened ability to see things that other people can't see, or was it more the agency was in the the the, the agency was outside of you giving you those? I didn't hear voices that were commanding kinds of voices in the sense where that would be an external mm-hmm. uh, pr- presumptively telling me what to do. What I felt was that I could read uh, the universe, for lack of a better <laughs> word, with more clarity than others. So a small example is that we went to a PCC grocery store to get some edamame that was on the list, and we were trying to decide what aisle it was located in. And just at that moment, a woman rounded the corner with a cart and all she had in it was edamame. (laughs) And so for me, this was, it just had to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, So that's, that's a tiny, a tiny example. On the flip side, I do think that you have heightened attunement when you're least well. It's, it's actually not a complete fantasy Mm -hmm. that, you can intuit with uh, profound accuracy in a way. I'm really wanting to get to this. Why did they put you in a psychiatric ward? I think that ultimately it does hint at a certain kind of psychological gift. And in my notes uh, that I wrote while I was hospitalized, I referred quite often to ESP. It was was sort of the one label that I could give it. And later when I went to see a psychologist in uh, British Columbia who also practices in a very broad sense, she said this was a birth as an initiation rite, that in a way my sensory system had been inverted Mm. so that I could perceive 
I mean, maybe we could say with the rawness of a poet, right, that that I was, but that that degree of, of exposure is in a way intolerable hmm. without having some edges, without, without knowing, without having your feet still on the ground. Hmm. Hmm. You guys, um, I want to talk a little bit about this. Your uh, type of therapy you do is very much grounded in a different belief system than Jenna and Brian, who are both behavioral therapists. So how would you both look at... How would you frame the the psychoses, and then how would you frame the repair of the psychoses? I want to compare and contrast just for people's likability. If they're ever thinking, "Oh, I want to get this kind of therapy," here's the difference in how it might be viewed, and some of the some of the ideas in which you might share with people. The the commonality I think is is so much more present than the differences. You probably have a different language of talking about than I do. But the thing that you said in the interview that I thought was just so important was it's this connection between mother and infant or parent and infant that is what is most precious. That's what needs to get preserved. And however we can, like if medication helps make that um, reconnection happen faster. That's most important. If there are other interventions, that's great. But I really, really think, you know, I'm a behaviorist, but there is nothing that is more important to humans, I think, than connection. We are this ultra social species who treat connection when that is severed, we treat it as if it is a um, death because from my perspective, evolutionarily, it was death. When you got kicked out of the tribe, you literally died. Mm. And so we are like biologically programmed to have these attachment needs and these connection needs. And when they get threatened, it it is we respond as if it is a threat to our life. Mm. Um, and, you know. So yeah. I just and, think that and is we so. were saying that we knew about the differences in theoretical orientation, but you know, through your memoir and yeah. in, and in preps for the for the conversation, we really thought this is going to be a this is going to be a, a non-starter and yeah. as far as conflict because you're so good it. at experience. Well, I think I think in in practical terms that we all have to begin with a situation that we're describing in everyday functional in an everyday functional manner yeah but that to the point of human connection that i what i have found to be most helpful is to provide a similar kind of containment mm-hmm. for the mother that the mother would provide for the infant yes and in fact that it is typical of childbirth that a mother is split apart literally mm. and needs to be held together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so how we do That's that beautiful is, mm-hmm. yeah. you know I, i've also just wondered we allow in our society for fathers to come to the infant on their own time we don't demand this immediate bonding we don't you know i've heard so many dads say like it's their thing and mm-hmm. and it's only when the child is a little more interactive or sturdier that they actually begin to bond so why is it that there's it's almost like if that's not happening for women, then there's this added extra pressure which says, oh, my God, I'm depressed and I'm not bonding and mm-hmm. I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't it part going back to the expectations that this is supposed to happen? Mm-hmm. And so if it's not happening to you, something's really wrong? Hmm. 
I think mothers search for every possible piece of evidence yes. for how they are yeah. not mothering right. well. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And that delayed attachment is one of the many presentations that are possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even that language sounds pejorative, but yeah. I think is probably a part of a typical s- spectrum. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the gap between I think the gap between what you think you're supposed to be like or what you expect the experience to be and what it actually is or how you actually are behaving is, I mean, we've been talking most about how that impacts moms, but I think that's true across gender. Absolutely. You know, as a, as a dad who, um, who maybe bonds differently, some, some fathers are going to feel like they want to bond in a particularly close, intimate way, but that's not really like being a guy mm-hmm. or they have the opposite that I'm supposed to show up in a particular way and I'm supposed to figure out how I could possibly figure out how to nurse this child as well, right, et cetera, right. et cetera. I was a stay-at-home dad for a couple of years and um, when when my, my children are adopted and uh, I had them when they turned uh, five, three, and one for two and a half years, I stepped out of practice. And a lot of issues having to do with identity and what this meant to me mm. and the loss of the things I was used to doing and how I wasn't really in a community of fellow parents mm-hmm. because I was the token guy mm. that was sort of curious, mm. but Isolated. don't get too close. Yeah, right? yeah. And then you get together with your buddies and they're talking about work and you're talking about potty training and sandwiches and mm-hmm. play dates. And, um, I mean, it's just, I think universally, not to, this isn't supposed to be me saying like, well, men too, but I think that this issue of the gap between what we expect it to be like or what we we think it's supposed to be (laughs) and where we are creates all kinds of issues in terms of our, at least what our minds tell us, Mm, mm, across gender and across circumstance. This just happens to be a particularly uh, uh, vivid and potent experience for a particular gender. It's, it's so yeah. beautiful that, that you say it that way. I, lo- I love how you talk about um, the kind of distortion of what your kind of tribe is supposed to be at any yes. one time, right? Yeah. And uh, I had this very profound experience when I was a mo- new mother. I had to go back to work quite soon, three months. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't really of the go to the park and have tea and everybody's lounging around under trees tribe. I definitely wasn't ready to be back at work tribe. And so I was kind of wandering in between mm-hmm. these worlds of like, I needed, as you described so beautifully, a container Yeah. for who was I and what the mm-hmm. hell was I doing? I, w- I didn't belong e- to either place. But that goes back to the this issue we were talking about earlier about connection. We have such this desire to be a part of a connection, a tribe, to have a sense of like, you get me and I get you. And whether that's Brian, you know, your experience as a dad hanging out with all of the stay at home moms and feeling like, oh, I'm not mm. quite exactly yeah. like in this, this tribe. Yeah. yeah. Or Sheila, your experience or my experience of somebody who's never had children. And then what is that like when everybody around me sort you, of. You get to be the vacation tribe, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and actually that's sort of, that's sort of interesting. Sign like that, up. yeah, that happens all of the time, right? I'll like bet. people, people say all of the time, oh, it's so wonderful how much uh-huh. freedom and blah, blah, right. blah. And yeah. like, 
Yeah, no. and I don't get to have the exactly. kid cu- cuddling up with right, me on that Sunday whole, right. That whole like, yeah. oh yeah, lucky one. Right. Uh-huh. It goes back to what we were saying yeah. of just yeah. all the various oh, layers. All the various of, ways. Yes. Yeah. And actually the other thing. Exactly, and, and Brian. They live, and they yes. live side by side. It's both. Right. And I talk to clients about this all the time, about this sense of... It's both and. Yes. And I say, what are the great things about being here yes. in my office? And, and you know, of course, they think they're they're supposed to say things like, um, you're so nice. Really good inside. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 more basic. Like I have comfortable chairs. I give you free tea. <laughs> yeah. You know, things like that. And they're like, oh, okay, right, right, right. Yeah. And then I say, what are the bad things about being here? And they say, well, the traffic and it's a little tricky to find parking for visitors. And I thought maybe like I'll get towed if I park in the permit spot and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, so yeah, so understand that no matter how bad the traffic here is here, if it's worse, the chairs aren't less comfortable. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. it's like... That's really right? good. Yeah. And it's I like... I'm going to come see you. <laughs> right. Right. And if you, and if you decide yeah. to park in the permit spot and, or, and might get towed... I'm not like, well, they won't tow you as far because the tea is really good. Like that stuff just doesn't make sense, oh, right? Yeah, all the that. good and all the bad, the black and the white don't make gray. Yes. They make yes. black and mm. white. And yes. the black doesn't make the white any less white. And the white doesn't make the black any less black. Our experiences, varied as they are, don't really mingle into something we can put a new label on. Yeah. They just sort of sit there side by side. And it's like, yep, that's right. And the other thing. And that's we, also right. And we have this this idea of... Oh, if we choose correctly, then we'll get mostly the white and out without the black. And I hear like when people come to my practice and and are in kind of that place of should I have a kid or should I not have a child or should I get married or not married as if they're weighing this pros and cons list of, well, if I make the right choice, then I'm going to have mostly white. And like I'm here to tell you, I have chosen sort of the path less traveled for mm-hmm. most of the choices in my life and it's still it's black and, and it's, it's white. white and it's white but it's but it's my choice it's and just it's okay kind of, and it's fine and the yeah. and, and yeah. the and the relative what we would call them maybe downsides yeah uh don't really go away when somebody goes oh, but come on, Argentina. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Or, or yeah. when I feel sort of disconnected and I'm like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm getting dumber. Yeah. And I stress about things like whether my youngest pooped in his pants or not. And somebody yeah. says, well, come on, like your boss isn't yelling at you. Right. You don't have to worry right. about, well, you get to take a nap in the middle of the day or whatever. Exactly. As if that ever happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I think the tension that we <laughs> sit in with these decisions is just inherent in the human condition. Yes, right. Yeah. And I have had to come to see that with every choice there's loss there's what you're doing and there's what you're not yes oh yes i also will just dial back quickly because you mentioned the dad postpartum and the adoptive parent yes Mm -hmm. and just that they also have these perinatal experiences Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing that in yeah thank you i do think that that is that is really important i was hoping we could talk about that too is this does get focused primarily on women who have biological children and it does happen with men and i think it's probably talked about less uh with with men and it does happen with adoptive parents as well and it's Mm -hmm. probably um talked about less with that too so i so appreciate you bringing in all different forms of parenting yeah. and how any huge life change like that is yeah 
going to rock your world. But we live in a world, I think, that sees the person who does their taxes every day as, oh, they're the healthy ones. Mm -hmm. They're the like normal ones. Even if they're never able to see the beauty or serendipity or the things that the poet or the person who's, you know, having these unusual or not typical experiences feels. And what if we just sort of saw human beings as how could we be more flexible? How could we have all range of experience? Yates said that uh, Newton destroyed the beauty of the rainbow by reducing its to it reducing it to its prismatic colors. Oh, oh. oh my you God, know, like how beautiful. That. Wow. That's really beautiful. I think it's Brian. important mm-hmm. to remember that I couldn't distinguish between reality and yes. fantasy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So right. when I'm brought back to myself in a grounded form, mm-hmm. then I might be able to learn when to pick and choose those exactly. options. Yes. Great point. Yes. Really great point. Think, exactly. Yeah, if you, can, if you could notice... Right. If you could notice when an experience shows up that it's this is my psychosis, then you engage with that thought or that experience a little bit differently than if it is uh, sort of indiscriminately mingled with and masquerading as your non-psychotic experiences. Is that fair to say? I think it is because I think what we're grasping at here is the benefit of heightened attunement. Mm-hmm. That that's an exceptional quality that we would want to grow in, in everyone and particularly in a parent. Mm. But to not be able to mm-hmm. organize your thinking in a way mm-hmm. that can um, put you in a position such that you're choosing when to use that skill. Yeah. Exactly. And that's so exactly. this is really beyond your control. Absolutely. And I think that's the hardest part about it because it can be very disturbing for those around you and it's involuntary. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know that, um, some of the kind of best evidence for, um, at least non-pharmacological interventions for psychosis are those interventions that they, they don't get rid of the hallucinations or delusions. They help teach people how to distinguish oh, that's my thought, that's this psychotic thought or this thought, and then be able to choose, is that workable to, you know, sort of follow whatever it is saying. So I love what you just said there. It isn't the actual experience itself that is problematic. It's the inability to sort of choose or respond to it in a way that would be most workable Mm. for you. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, You... It's funny because I I was going through the book looking at the techniques that you talked about that you didn't name them as techniques, but one thing that you said that I thought sounded very much like a behavioral technique is thought stopping. I learned this technique. That's enough for today. I'm going to think about you again tomorrow. Uh, If we could come away with one tool for this thing today, it would be like everybody needs to learn things, right? Um, But you developed many, many techniques like that to consistently ground yourself. Um, so have you had experiences since the postpartum that felt like, oh my God, I'm drifting just a little bit too close to where I was before then I need to pull it back again. I need to ground myself more. I need to quiet things down. Yes. And it surprises me that 
that could be true 20 years after the fact. And, and that's why I really liken mm. it to post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Because what's been helpful for me is to realize, no, actually, I'm having a sensation that reminds me <laughs> of what was happening, but is not actually a repetition mm. of the yeah. illness. Yeah. So then I'm really need to, needing to confront my extreme fear about never wanting that to happen to me again. Mm. Sure. So... I've had to white knuckle it out a few times, but in a way I've really been spared, I have to tell you. Uh, And that's, that's a a bit of a luck of the draw Mm. because I have known people in my life that haven't been restored to, to quite the same place. It's not a given. And oftentimes it has to do with how many previous episodes there have been and how often you go up and down. Mm-hmm. So so mine was confusing in a way because it was a single experience of a manic episode with no prior history and no subsequent symptoms. Wow. So it was a, a challenging task for me to go back and try to make sense of that and also to hang on to the idea of was that actually me? Mm-hmm. Did, did that really happen? Mm. And how do I account for it exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, your book doesn't talk about this, but recently the FDA said they're just clearing a medication uh, for postpartum psychosis, for postpartum depression. How would that particular drug act any differently than any other SSRI that's out on the market? I think medications are really uh, complicated topic. Yeah. And what I would say is that when I received antidepressants for what was mania, I initially looked better, but ultimately they're contraindicated mm-hmm. and it exacerbated the symptoms. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that my illness might not have had the same course but it definitely aggravated the illness and it lengthened the time during which I could not sleep. And I had to wait for those medicines to leave my system. Mm. At the same time, once I did receive an accurate diagnosis, medications brought me back. Mm. So I don't have a definitive thing to say other than I think Accurate diagnosis is really important. Yeah, uh, not to assume that that uh, uni- unipolar depression is a given. Yeah, to, to to try to look for some history or other indications of a bipolar disorder, but specifically about the that kind of infusion that was described. This medication that is uh, now available. I think it's quite expensive. Yeah. Um, that would not have helped me in particular because it's it wasn't directed for, for mania. And I don't know how... It, it seems to be in its very initial phases, so it, it may be more arduous now than it, it could potentially be in the future. So I don't have a direct opinion about it other than to say... It is encouraging that we're looking at treatments specifically for what I would now call perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, mm. because we know these 
are a continuum and they're yeah. often starting in pregnancy. Right. And that the most important part that I understood from reading is that the intention was to restore the mother-infant relationship as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that that's will lead to the most impactful outcomes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You say that there's a woman, Michelle Overmond, who is really advocating for crimes that are committed during a postpartum psychosis as that the, the person should not be held legally responsible is the same idea that we have in the court system when somebody is declared insane. Or, I mean, I, I'm so struck by what we know in our hearts is right and the reality out there, which is there's very, there's going to be very little support for that. My initial response is that we're failing women before they're put in the position to have such a tragic event occur. Right. And for me, I think I kept being pulled to those stories because it was unfathomable to me that, that a woman could have an illness that she did not choose, that the illness would lead her to do acts that she would never uh, execute in any other situation, and then that she would be punished. Mm. So I'm not saying that these are not hugely concerning uh, potential events, but that we need to do more uh, uh, up front. We, prevention is really what people seem to be moving toward. Yeah. Mm. I Yeah, I guess if I could add to that, I mean, I might extend that even beyond women who are experiencing psychosis or um, postpartum and kill their infant's probably most people who are um, committing crimes or, or, I mean, we have so radically failed people who are suffering psychologically in our, in our country. Mm. It is, it's shocking to me as if the, the, the other person, the person who goes out and commits a school shooting or the person who, um, you know, any number of other crimes, as if they're somehow choosing that. We've failed. If if that's the outcome for anybody, we have very clearly failed them way earlier in in the line. And I am not saying that there shouldn't then also be consequences for that behavior. You know, certainly not saying that. But I am saying, I think, especially as a psychologist myself, we have failed people to be able to help them deal with the suffering that they are struggling with so that they end up that this is the outcome. Mm. I just think that's tragic. Yeah. In all of my wisdom as a criminal justice expert... <laughs> I mean, I, well, mine too, Brian. Right? Clearly. I mean, I the thing <laughs> the thing that I most feel when I think about that is how tragic the situation is already. Right. It right. just breaks my heart that you know that somebody would find themselves having done this so opposite mm -hmm. uh, what they would otherwise do, yeah. and the enormity of that loss, and then to add to it uh, a punishment that doesn't. 
doesn't erase the the loss or the pain or the suffering. It doesn't set anything right. I I just to me it seems like tragedy on tragedy. Mm. Yeah, we have this way of punishing people who are suffering rather than <laughs> or maybe even in addition to if consequences have to happen also understanding the context that would create that we do this thing of they're the monsters they're the like we would never do that Mm -hmm. versus asking the question oh wow like how how what did produce this that you know they're cut of the same cloth i am and there's this really really wonderful book um I think his, the author's last name is Browning. It's called uh, Ordinary Men. And it's this examination yeah. of um, ordinary citizens in Germany during the Holocaust and how we love to think, oh, we would never commit the atrocities yeah. that were committed. And I do think as mental health professionals, you know, it is on us to be able to ask those questions of like, wait, what, what leads to this? If it isn't just you're broken and you're damaged. Mm. That's such a beautiful place to end. Mm -hmm. Incredible. I, I don't know when this is coming out, but I am telling everyone that I can to read this setting the wire, a memoir of postpartum psychosis, exploring motherhood and mental illness. Sarah Townsend, thank you so much for coming down and joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I'll just say in ending that the opportunity to make art from this experience has been one of the most important acts of my life. So I'm, it's beautiful. I'm grateful to have readers. It's beautiful yeah. art. I, yeah, I would add um, also just buy the book. Um, re- I mean, re- read it, but the purchasing the book, it is a stunning book. It is absolutely beautiful. I've never seen a book that has such this lovely presentation to it. It's like a work you of will, art. So. You will love the book to read yes. and yeah. you will and love the book yes. just to have feel. it in your hands yes. and look yes. at. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's available now at sarahtownsendwriter.com. Okay. Great. It's from the Lettered Streets Press. Wonderful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you so much for downloading and talking to your friends about Beyond Well. This is a community of people that is growing pretty rapidly, and we are so happy to see so many of our friends listening from Australia. If you ever want to get in touch, you can find us at beyondwellwithsheilahamilton.com. Be well.